Hello, and welcome to PwC's Accounting and Reporting podcast series. Our mission is to inform and educate accountants and other stakeholders on today's hottest accounting issues. I'm your host, Heather Horn, a partner in our national office. Back with me today is Diane Howell, a partner in our national office who specializes in SEC reporting. Diane is a prior guest on our series, and it's great to have her back. In today's episode, we'll focus on a perennially popular topic, non-GAAP financial measures. Diane will start with some background information, and then we'll address key issues, best practices, and frequently asked questions. So let's jump right into our discussion. So Diane, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm looking forward to this conversation about non-GAAP measures. Um, but maybe before we jump into it, why don't we start with some background? And can you remind our listeners what we mean when we say non-GAAP measures? A non-GAAP measure is defined as a measure that either excludes or includes amounts that are included or excluded and the most directly comparable measure calculated in accordance with GAAP. And some examples, some more commonly used examples would be EBIT. Uh, EBITDA, adjusted EBITDA, free cash flow. But keep in mind that there are uh, measures of operating performance that fall outside the definition of a non-GAAP measure, so the rules wouldn't apply to them. And some of those, some examples of those would be number of units, uh, you know, sales, um, number of employees, number of subscribers, um, the measures of profit or loss um, for segments that's calculated in accordance with ASC Topic 280, disclosure of the amounts of repayments that have been planned but not yet made. So thanks, Diane. So that's helpful background. Then why don't we move into our next topic, which would be why do companies like to use them? I have some theories, but why don't you let <laughs> us know what we know about that? Sure. Um, well, in some respects, the old adage, well, everybody's doing it, uh, kind of applies here. Let me give you some statistics to, to show you what I mean. For 2018, um, 97% of uh, the S&P 500 uh, used at least one non-GAAP financial measure. In 20, to, to compare that, in 2016, it was 76%. In 1996, way back then, it was 59%. So they have grown significantly over time. The average number of measures used over the last 20 years has increased from approximately 2.5 to 7.5. That's a, that's a huge increase. Um, so there's several reasons why I think companies use uh, non-GAAP financial measures. I think they do provide investors with uh, useful information, which can benefit investors if this leads them to a better understanding of the company. Um, and investors are demanding um, these measures. I think it allows the company to tell its story, and it kind of gets to core operations. If you're taking out um, adjustments, sort of one-time adjustments or unusual adjustments, it, it gets you to the actual core operations. It may also uh, assist in you know, cross-industry or company-to-company comparisons. These uh, differences between GAAP and non-GAAP measures have increased significantly over time, um, which has resulted in additional uh, interpretive guidance from the staff, as well as the staff's continued focus on these measures. So, Diane, let's pause before we get into the rules and uh, interpretations. I just have a question. So, from two and a half on average to seven and a half, I think that's tripled in number. And that's a lot of non-GAAP measures. And you gave a few common examples. What other types of measures do people even include? Um, well, some examples would be presenting numbers on a constant currency basis, some industry-specific measures, for example, uh, funds from operations is a real estate-specific measure. Also, adjusted EBITDA can be adjusted for several different items at several different times, and each time, you know, the title would be changed a little bit. Oh, so it's you're very... saying you have 
adjusted EBITDA and then you have sort of adjusted Further adjusted, EBITDA further adjusted. Two, yeah, right? yeah, exactly, yeah. Okay. exactly. Okay. It really depends on the company and their facts and circumstances and, and again, sort of industry-based as well. And then you said, I mean, we went from, I think you said around 59%, 60% 20 years ago to 97% today. That's also a huge increase. And again, I think you mentioned investor interest. Mm -hmm. And then I guess if I'm a company and I see another company using a measure, then I might think, oh, that's helpful to me. I mean, anything else that we think is really driving? No, I mean, as I said before, I think it's kind of everybody does it. Like nobody wants to be an outlier. And if and if that's what the analysts are looking for for a particular industry, then they want to see it from you know all the different companies. So I think it's a combination of those two things. Okay, good. That's helpful. So then why don't we move into our third topic, which... You know, I'm aware a lot of rules around um, the use of these measures by SEC registrants. So can you just give us some background on the rules and, and interpretations? Sure. The rules were issued in 2003 as a result of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. They haven't really changed since then. There's been additional guidance um, issued primarily in the form of what we call CDIs, compliance and disclosure uh, interpretations. But th- these are basically a reflection of the evolution of the staff's Um, thinking based upon um, the practices of of registrants. Uh, The SEC does not prohibit um, disclosure of non-GAAP measures. Um, You simply must comply with the rules and the interpretive guidance in developing the measure and disclosing it. So there's specific rules um, which depend upon where um, the measure is used. There's three levels. So the first one is Reg G, which is for any public disclosures. The rules here are can't be misleading. You must disclose the directly comparable gap number and a reconciliation from gap to non-gap must be made. And that must start with the gap number and move to, to non-gap. Um, the second level is for an item 202 Form AK for, for an earnings release. This would be all the requirements of Reg G, which I just talked about, plus the addition of these three items. The first one is, is that the gap number must be of equal or greater prominence and, in fact, must be before the non-gap measure. Disclosure needs to be made of why management believes the non-GAAP measure is useful. And third, um, how management uses that non-GAAP measure, if it's applicable, if they actually use that measure in in, uh, running their business. The third level is um, item 10E of Regulation SK, and this is for SEC filings, forms 10Q, 10K, 20F, etc. This would be item 202 matters plus the addition of, of other rules. Uh, the first one is is that you cannot exclude charges or liabilities that require cash settlement from liquidity measures. The second one was you cannot exclude items identified as either non-recurring, infrequent, or unusual from performance measures if that item or that event happened at least once in the last two years or is expected to happen again in the next two years. doesn't mean you can't adjust for it. You just can't call it one-time event. You can't include the information in financial statements or performance information, and you can't use misleading titles. So then um, I have a couple questions. You mentioned that the sort of second layer would apply to an earnings release, Mm -hmm. and then this full sort of suite applies if it's going in one of your registration statements. So then does that mean I could, if I'm a company, actually have some non-GAAP measures that are included in the earnings release but then aren't in the registration statement, like, is that a common occurrence? It is a common occurrence. Um, however, you know, if the information was deemed to be important enough for an earnings release, you know, there's always the question of, well, why isn't it then in the filing, the subsequent filing? Um, you know, again, the staff wants consistency. And again, if you 
thought it was important to disclose in your press release, you probably should put it in your filing as well. Right. And so then, to the extent it doesn't comply with that additional set of rules, I guess that would raise a question if it makes sense for it to be in your press release to begin with. Or, or modify your press release right. so that it's that it meets the rules for inclusion in your 10Q or 10, your subsequent SEC filing. Okay, that's helpful. And then you made a comment when you are talking about the press release um, where you mentioned that you, they, a company needs to disclose how the management uses the measure. Mm-hmm. And then, so do they need to use that measure as part of managing their business or it's only if they do use the measure? It's as only part? if it's applicable. Okay, so in some cases you, if they may, use it. you may decide to disclose something because you know it's helpful for analysts or something else, but that that's you right. as the company don't. Okay, that's, that's, right. that's very helpful. And then I think this might be my last question on this. The very first set of rules you talked about, which would apply to any disclosure, so I would assume that would include like if it's on your website yeah. or something. Analyst reports. Analyst yeah. reports, yep. et cetera. Yep. So then... Do we have instances where companies actually could get comments from the staff even on those types of disclosures? Yes, absolutely. Okay, absolutely. Good. The SEC um, will look at websites and analyst reports and, and um, analyst calls. Uh, they'll look at that oftentimes for you know non uh, non GAAP measures. They'll look at it to see you know that the way you discuss segments is consistent with your financial statements. There's a, a lot of things that they look for. So, Diane, that's helpful. So then why don't, I think that naturally leads us into our next topic, which is comment letters and comment letter trends. And at least from my recollection, non-GAAP measures has been sort of at the top of the trends, at least for the past few years. So can you give us some sense of the types of comments uh, companies receive and some things that they should be thinking about? Sure. Uh, you're right. It is still the number one source of comments, and the comments usually request registrants to either remove or substantially uh, modify the measures that are presented. Um, they are less than they were last year, but they're still more in number than they were in 2015, which was right before the uh, the new guidance, the new CDIs were issued in 2016. Okay, so some of the common comment letters have been uh, around prominence. Again, gap number has to be of, of equal or greater prominence. Uh, reconciliation, you have to reconcile from the gap number to, to non-gap number. Also, um, the, the disclosures as to why management believes that the non-gap presentation provides useful information to investors. It's either not conclusive, it's not, uh, it's too boilerplate, or it's missing. Uh, there's also been a couple of recent enforcement cases that are worth uh, mentioning. Uh, coincidentally, they both are around prominence. Um, the first one, the staff, the Corp Fin, issued a comment, um, asked the registrant to modify or remove the particular measure. Uh, The registrant agreed to do that and then didn't do it. Um, So that's when enforcement stepped in. Um, The second one, um, the enforcement just went after directly. Uh, A couple of lessons here to learn is that you say you're going to do something, do it, because the staff will follow up. Uh, And secondly, that the commission will hold people up to to CDI interpretations. Um, There has been progress made in some of the easy-to-fix issues, which, you know, to me, they are the prominence and the reconciliation. Um, So they've kind of moved on and now focusing on individually tailored accounting principles. Um, So this guidance was added to the 2016 CDIs in question number 100.04, and um, this states that a non-GAAP financial measure that substitutes individually tailored revenue recognition and measurement methods from those of GAAP could violate SEC rules. They're not clearly defined, but when we talk about these measures, um, these usually are things that that go beyond simple adding and subtracting of of GAAP numbers from a financial statement line item. 
the SEC did provide some insights into what they believe these individually tailored accounting principles are at the uh, AICPA conference in December. Um, and they highlighted four questions that they ask um, when they review uh, registrants' um, non-GAAP measures to determine whether or not they're individually tailored accounting principles. Wait, so before you go into the rules then, an individually tailored accounting principle is not an acceptable that's correct. non-GAAP yes, measure. That's okay. correct. That's what I thought. But yes. Okay, so let's keep going. So sure. then, so basically, they issued new interpretive guidance in 2016, mm-hmm. and that which included this. They because, highlighted this issue. Okay, because we're seeing an increasing trend to these individually tailored accounting measures. That's so, right. Okay. Yep. All right, so then if I'm a registrant now, what should I be looking for for this? Sure. What are these four things? The SEC has four questions that they shared with us as, as some insights as to things they're asking before they issue a comment. The first one is, is, does the adjustment shift gap from an accrual basis of accounting to a cash or modified basis of accounting? For example, if, um, if you uh, recognize revenue at, over time and then you, you switch to uh, point in time for a non-GAAP measure, that would be not acceptable. The second one was, does the adjustment include transactions that are also reportable in another company's financial statements? And this would result in changing uh, your conclusion um, as, as to whether you're a principal or agent in a gross versus net uh, consideration, or whether or not you have significant influence or consolidation over a company. These could result in the presentation of transactions that are reportable within another company's financial statements. So if you have those, you cannot change That's right. Change yeah, them. these are all things that you can't do. Okay. Uh, the third one is, is, does the adjustment reflect parts but not all of an accounting change? Uh, for example, if you adjust for income tax effects, but you only include the impact of cash taxes paid, uh, but you, and you exclude the impact of temporary or permanent differences. And the last one is, is, does the adjustment render the measure inconsistent with the economics of a transaction or an agreement? This example is, in, in, for example, in a situation where companies earn revenue from operating and sales type um, financing leases. If you adjust revenue for the sales type leases as if they were operating leases, then it would ignore some of the underlying economics. Okay, so very helpful. So this is, a new, I think, going to be a new concept for a lot of our listeners. Can you give us some examples of what we mean when we say these individually tailored accounting principles? Sure. I actually brought a couple of sample uh, comments, so why okay. don't we just read those. Okay. Uh, the first one is, is um, we note your computations of non-GAAP measures, adjusted operating earnings, adjusted net income, and adjusted EPS exclude acquisition-related intangible assets amortization. Please tell us how you determine the adjustments to exclude the amortization of certain acquired intangible assets do not substitute individually tailored income or expense recognition methods for those of GAAP. Refer to question 100.04 of the non-GAAP financial measures compliance and disclosure interpretations. A second one is you include adjustments to arrive at net operating profit that appear to remove your operating lease rent expense under GAAP and replace it with estimated depreciation as if these assets had met the criteria for capital assets or you had purchased the properties. You also include adjustments to arrive at average invested capital to add an an estimated asset base for these operating assets that does not exist on your GAAP balance sheet and remove various lease liabilities. It appears that these adjustments may substitute individually tailored recognition and measurement methods for those of GAAP. Please remove these adjustments from your non-GAAP measure or tell us how you considered the guidance in question 100.04 of the non-GAAP financial measures compliance and disclosure interpretations updated on April 4th, 2018 and concluded that these adjustments were appropriate. 
Wow. So basically, with this sort of new trend of individually tailored accounting principles, it's going one step beyond a non-GAAP adjustment, which is taking a GAAP number and adjusting it for another GAAP number, and almost like making up your own GAAP. Yep. And that's what the staff say you cannot do. Exactly. Yes. Very clear from those comments. That's yes. helpful. Thank you. You okay? Good. Maybe then, if I'm someone who's listening and hopefully thinking, okay, I will not be coming up with my own accounting principles, um, but I would like to have high-quality non-GAAP measures, what are some best practices that our listeners should think about? Sure. Well, remember to clearly describe why you're using the measure and what the measure was designed to do. Again, avoid boilerplate disclosures as to you know, why the information is in there. Implement a structure to reduce the subjectivity of the measures. Um, you know, have policies and approval process, you know, controls around these measures. Um, the same rigor that's used for the preparation and presentation of your GAP numbers should be used for your non-GAP measures as well. Get your audit committee involved. Um, the audit committee should be comfortable uh, with the measures that are presented and, and how they're calculated. Whenever the disclosure committee or the audit committee gets involved, we always see that there seems to be a positive impact on the quality of the measures. Um, remember to be consistent and to be transparent. For consistency, if you change the way uh, you're calculating a measure from year to year, that should be disclosed and, and there should be a bridge from one year to the next. Also remember, no cherry picking. If you're going to adjust net income to take away some, some charges, you have to do the same thing for uh, gains, unusual gains. For transparency, these would include what we talked about before, which is that the uh, comparable gap number has to have greater or equal prominence. Also, that the title of the non-GAAP measure can't be confusing and it can't be too close or can't be exactly the same as the comparable GAAP number. It has this to be gets, clear. It has to be very clear. Yeah. And this gets particularly challenging if you have a whole bunch of non-GAAP measures, right? Yeah, if you could start Go from the 2.5 yeah. to the 7.5 that yeah. we talked about before, if you're going to have a whole bunch of non-GAAP measures, you have to make sure that they're all really clear as to what they are. And lastly, just remember that bending the rules to get the result that you're looking for is wrong, whether it's a GAAP number or a non-GAAP number. Always a good reminder. Yes. Yes. And it's interesting. I mean, when you talked about, you talk about the fact that um, the rules were originally in, issued in 2003, and then obviously there's been recent interpretation, but still that there's still so many comments around this. I think this is really a good reminder for people, be familiar with the rules and make sure you're following, I guess, the spirit of the rules mm -hmm. as well, yeah. um, because, again, of, of this trend that we're seeing. So very helpful, Diane. I think great timing with calendar year and companies um, going into first quarter year reporting. So really appreciate you being here today. Thank you, Heather. To our listeners, I hope that you learned as much as I did from this discussion with Diane. Check out our podcast page on CFODirect.com for more information on non-GAAP financial measures and to find Diane's prior episode on SEC comment letter trends. I hope you'll join me here again next week for a topic that goes beyond the financial statements when I interview PwC economist Chris Benko to discuss five things you need to know about economic trends. To make sure you never miss an episode, Subscribe to our podcast series on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you find your content. And we'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. 
PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.